episode 13, Dark Dungeons. So 13 is a bad number, it's kind of like bad luck, Friday the 13th, and we're actually taping this on a Friday. Oh, so we didn't want to skip number 13, as is common for a lot of people, straight to 14, because yes, it's so appropriate, especially considering the subject matter that we have here. And the subject matter is, we've gotten an interview, an exclusive interview, with the people who made the Dark Dungeons movie. That's right. In case you didn't already hear, we have an interview with Brian Bloom and Andrew Bean of Boolean Union. This is a studio that produced an animated movie version of the infamous tract Dark Dungeons, and it's animated to the same level of quality that you would expect to see in a good video game, for instance. Dark Dungeons was a uh, comic strip that was put out in the 1980s, and actually was more of like a tract warning people of the dangers of D&D. You know, some of the tropes that was actually reiterated in that comic strip were that the game actually teaches you how to cast real spells, sort of like a training ground for, you know, subversive religious beliefs and then you could actually you know cast spells that worked like the mind bonjon cell on your father to force him to buy dnd books also the fact that you will believe that you are your character you will lose yourself in your character and be tempted to do all sorts of foolish dangerous things if something bad happens to your character obviously it's no surprise that this track actually became a cult hit amongst uh, gamers and, and in one way it actually popularized D&D. It sort of had the opposite of the intended effect. It doesn't warn people against role-playing games so much as it's become it's almost like a secret handshake among gamers like have you seen Dark Dungeons? What do you think about it? It's a great conversation starter at a convention. Now, this isn't the first time that somebody actually did something with Dark Dungeons. Obviously, there's been some MST3K sort of riffs on it where people have made jokes about it. But, I mean, this, contrary to most of the other stuff out there, is sort of like, you know, what if we took this thing and actually made a movie as if we were, like, dead serious? I mean, they're basically taking the track, and they're not making fun of it. They're actually making the movie based on it. I guess the humor is basically comes in from just watching the, the whole thing, but actually seeing it animated as, like, a full-length movie. The humor just comes in from your general association with it. We're going to let Mr. Bloom and Mr. Bean speak for themselves in the interview here, but it's obvious like which side of the issue they're on. We heard about the movie ourselves from looking at the blog by our friends at escapist.com, which is a gaming advocacy website. So it's not like we're going out of our way to find controversy here. This is definitely something that's part of gaming culture. It's almost celebrated at this point. So, without further ado, episode 13, Dicecast, Dark Dungeons, right after this. 
Conjurations 2011, Montreal's gaming convention. Role-playing games, board games, war games, miniatures, LARPs, and more. May 14th and May 15th at the Red Roof Church, Church of St. John the Evangelist, at 137 President Kennedy near the Place des Arts metro station. For more information, go to ggconventions.com. That's Conjurations 2011, May 14th to May 15th, ggconventions.com. All right, so welcome uh, to Dicecast. We're actually with Brian and JD from Bullion Union. They've made a uh, adaptation of the Dark Dungeons track as a movie, an animation, and we're interviewing them today. So Brian and JD, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks, indeed. Okay, well, let's get the obvious one out of the way here. Which side of the issue are you on? Are you actually against gaming? No, not even close. <laughs> not at all, yeah. That was part of the reason why we why we chose this particular tract to do with. Um, we're we're very, we're both very pro game, and uh, and that was part of what drew us to this. But no, we 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 do not agree at all. We don't we don't believe anything, and that's something that I've always had to. Whenever I've shown the uh, the clip to people, is so why did you do this? Do you really believe all this stuff? Do you really believe that that? you know, Dungeons and Dragons leads to witchcraft or whatever, and the answer is, of course, no, you know. <laughs> I mean, when, when you reach ninth level, you don't actually get to learn the real magic. Yeah, that's very unfortunate. Oh, damn, okay, that's it, I'm over here. I mean, this is the end of the game, you know, for me. I'm not, I'm not playing your game, Andrew, anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I've never gotten over it. Tell us a bit about your production of Dark Dungeons. Well, um, I guess it was about a year, year and a half ago. Yeah, it seems, it seems it's amazing that it's taken that long. Yeah, we were um, we were looking for a project to do. We had had a couple that we had started work on, and they just kind of fizzled because we just I think we lost interest in some of the plots. Yeah, we we had, there are a lot of false starts as uh, anyone can find if they look on our website. We we still have some of them available, and so we'd reached a point where we didn't have any we didn't have any projects on hand, and we said, well. We were always fans of Chick Tracks. We had seen and we had read that Dark Dungeons was a particularly virulent one that a lot of people tended to take interest in. So we're like, well, let's let's go with that. Yeah, and I had heard of the tract from from years earlier, so it seemed like a, a decent thing to do. And we kind of got into it. You know, we were some coming and going, but we managed to keep going the whole way through it. Um, the the total production of the uh, piece took about well, it it took us a, about a year from beginning to end, but. The bulk of the work of it, you know, there were probably three or four months of setup time of getting sets, characters, getting the layout of, of the way we wanted things to look. Laying down a script and rewriting that. Mm -hmm. and that was all going on at the same time. And then there were another, you know, three to four months of just animating it where we would put the characters in the scene. We, we, uh, we, had, our, we had our actors perform their lines. We... Uh, made the characters are in, in the uh, in the scene speak the lines, made them move the way we wanted to do, and then there were a couple more months of post production for special effects, getting everything together, editing the movie the way we wanted it to be. So that's that's about the general flow of the production. Now, in your own words, uh, please describe the original Dark Dungeons tract by Jack Chick, just for the sake of our listeners who <laughs> might not be familiar if they're out there. Okay. Um, well, I guess Dark Dungeons was a track written by Jack Chick in 1984. He had, on the prompting of a man who was very 
prominent in the uh, the mid '80s, uh, named John Todd, had passed some information along to Chick that Dark Dungeons was a recruitment tool for yeah that that, that Dark Dungeons was in fact based on real life magic, and that people who played Dark Dungeons were being surreptitiously trained in the dark arts. I guess mm-hmm. it was used as sort of a recruitment tool. And so um, at his prompting, he, he authored this track. And I don't actually think the art is by Jack Chick himself. I believe it's by one of his other artists called um, Fred Carter, mm-hmm. uh, who he's brought in for some of his better-looking tracks. And an interesting thing is that uh, the original track, it's been modified a little bit over the years. The scene that takes place in the, in the auditorium with the Afro preacher had originally included some footnotes that had stated that J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were, in fact, occult writers and that the, those should be avoided as a result of that. I, I um, think they, they included, like, they had to burn the books as well, right? Um, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a... Yeah, the, the, the tract is kind of a broad spectrum condemnation of role-playing games, fantasy literature, rock music. There's a couple of hobby horses that they like to get on. Yeah. But the, the general flow of the tract is that we see there's a group of friends, most prominently um, a girl named Debbie and her friend Marcy, and they play this game called Dark Dungeons, which is Dungeons & Dragons in all but the name. Mm-hmm. And in the opening scene, Marcy... Uh, Marcy's player character is killed, and she somewhat takes, arbitrarily. Yeah, somewhat arbitrarily as a result of uh, random action by the dungeon master, the thief named Blackleaf. Yes, yeah. the thief and named Blackleaf. And of course, once you die in that game, you know you can't talk at all. You know, yeah, even, even if it's real life, you know they're dead. You can talk. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, and you certainly can't go to another game. It's like you're done. Like, oh yeah, yeah, you're done. It's toast. Yeah. You can't. You have to leave. You can't create a new character. Uh, I don't know. The rules Burn of Dark, your character sheet. The rules of Dark Dungeons are very strange, apparently. So Marcy leaves in tears, whereas Debbie apparently is then inducted into some kind of local coven or satanic cult or something, and she learns how to do real magic. You know, local Satanist 419. Yeah. Under the prompting of of a woman named Ms. Frost. And while doing so, Debbie comes to ignore her friend Marcy, who's going through a difficult time with the death of her player character. And of course, Marcy, you know, learns how to use, not Marcy, Debbie learns how to use real magic. And she casts the mind bondage spell on her father. And Mm -hmm. he buys tons of uh, miniatures, right? Yeah. Yeah. $200 worth of figures and manuals. And then Marcy, in a fit of I don't know what, Uh, decides to hang herself. Debbie finds the body. Debbie decides that she's been making a big mistake by pursuing all of this dark dungeons and magic. She She doesn't really know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. She she is uh, encouraged to attend some kind of a revival meeting whereupon a itinerant preacher talks about the dangers of role-playing games, rock music, fantasy literature, uh, you know, fill in the blanks. And then Debbie becomes Christian and her soul is presumably saved. And that's the, and that's the end of it. We never find out what happens to any of the other characters. Uh, There is also a nice big bonfire. Yes. The bonfire, the book burning scene. And I know that during the production, we sort of joked that Debbie had left a cult Mm -hmm. that plays role-playing games and, uh, and then I guess meets in satanic temples for a cult that burns, burns books. books. <laughs> but yeah, 
so that that's that's the that's the long and the short of it. That's the, that's the track, and of course, it it makes even less sense when you recall it in in such <laughs> brief terms. Mm-hmm. The, the track itself has this sort of shotgun pacing to it, where we go from setting to setting to setting to setting to setting with very little segue. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the some of the adaptation process was drawing that out because some of the scenes we have represent like one panel's worth of information, and there need to be a little padding going on there in order to make it flow a little more like a like a movie. Now. That comic is kind of famous across gaming culture. What do you think has been the strength of that comic? Is this because, you know, it is so, like, over the top? uh, Or or what is it that people, like, you know, especially gamers, feel so, you know, in love with this comic? It is a cult hit. I mean, you know, people do read it like if it was, you know, like a B-movie. Very much so. I I think that's a lot of it. There's kind of an... Ed Wood amateurish quality to it. And of course, it is very over the top. I mean, it's uh, anybody who's had any experience whatsoever with role playing games knows that there is there is no truth to it whatsoever. The idea that you could go from, say, you know, you know, these these games are involved with dice and, and page paper and, you know, maps drawn out on graph paper and things like that. And it's the idea that one could go from that to legitimately using some kind of I, I don't know, because my suspicion is the way that people who believe they practice magic do so is probably very different, and I suspect it doesn't involve dice. But um, the idea that, that role-playing gamers are in any way dangerous, the comic also has a lot of very quotable lines. Oh, yes. You know, I cast mind bondage on my father. You know, tell her I'll call her later. I'm fighting the zombie. Um, the only zombie, mind you. Yeah, there's only one. Um, uh, one monster. One monster, yeah. Get out of here, you're dead, you don't even exist anymore. You don't exist anymore, we can't talk to you, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I think that was the point he was trying to get across. It's like, oh, when you die in these games, you know, you you get so emotionally involved in them. It's like when you die, it's like, you know, your character dies and you die along with them. And, of course, anyone who knows anything knows that's absolutely bogus. Have you been in touch with Jack Chick or Chick Publications about this? (laughs) Well, no. We, that's been kind of a complicated question because... We don't. We have a we have a suspicion that if we ask, we don't know what the results would be good. But we feel that our work falls under parody. I mean, it's not a, it's not a very broad parody. I mean, we talked about it's like if we if if we could have made this an extremely like over the top uh, parody, but we tried to play it relatively straight. But we are. We believe, at least, that that it falls under fair use. Um, and there are other people who have done parodies of Chick Tracks that are far more scathing than ours. Well, I like mean, the MST3K uh, version of Yes, well, I've seen yeah. less ones than that. Yeah, and even um, uh, there's a series that was uh, Hot Chicks. Yeah, Hot Chicks, which is basically like a like a completely um, they, they were actually like film, mm-hmm. uh, and they were released at an independent film festival, and they are. <laughs> They're they're word for word from the tracks, but they're it, it's, they're played in an extremely satirical manner. And from from what we've what we've seen in our, our research on it, there hasn't been any real problems or repercussions with any of this. I my suspicion is that is that Chick Publications it, it, maybe it doesn't bother them. I mean, the original Dark Dungeons track is out of print, has been for some time. So I think now, in order to get the out of print tracks, you have to order a run of like ten thousand of them. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what you do with 10,000 copies of this thing. Yeah. So why did you do it as a 3D CGI animation production and not live action? In, in a lot of ways, I mean, 
it, it would be cool to do live action, but we simply don't have the resources in terms of cameras, um, actors, sound equipment, sound equipment, sets. We we really don't have a lot of stuff available to us. Whereas the the animation, the program that we use, which is called Daz Studio, is free, and they expect you to buy the models and stuff. Um, it's kind of an installment plan thing. But over time, over over years, we'd accumulated a large supply of models and things. Um, and so that allowed us to put together the production of this film without any new investment. Um, or it, very, very little. Yeah, we were also able to, um, for example, our, our voices. We, um, we didn't have the resources to put all of the voice actors together in the same room at the same time to record their lines. It, you know, the, the voices were recorded over a time of months at different places, different times. A lot of them never met one another. Yeah. The, the actress who played Miss Frost and the actress who played Debbie never met each other in person, um, and yet they share a good number of scenes together. And it sounds so, like uh, they're recording in the same room, like actors would. That's well, if we, if, if hopefully, if we did our jobs, then then that's the effect that you get. But we simply didn't have the, um, you know, we, people's schedules and stuff. So I, I in, in the case of Miss Frost, I actually had to drive a few hours away to get the to get the voices and yeah and we didn't have a sound studio or anything so we recorded everything on a macbook yeah. and sort of you know chopped it up and, and yeah and worked with it later so this the working with the 3d um in addition to being something that we're much more comfortable with because we've been doing 3d stuff in not as ambitious as this but in smaller scale we've been doing it for some time um, whereas 3D would have required a lot of skills, live action, would yeah, have, yeah, a lot of skills and equipment that we just didn't have. So while it would be cool to do a live action Dark Dungeons, we, I don't think it was going to be us to do it. I'd actually pay money for that. Yeah, that would be interesting <laughs> to see. You mentioned that a lot of the actors now actually met each other. How did you go about getting all these people to actually agree to this thing? Oh, by the way, we're doing this movie based on Dark Dungeons, and I want you to do these lines, but the other <laughs> actors are not going to be there just recording that. Like, how did you go about doing this? I mean, it sounds like a very ambitious project. It, it was very hard. We had some difficulties with getting people to, I mean, because some of the voices are done by me, and JD, mm-hmm. yeah, we we did a few of, of the characters ourselves. Um, There's a lot of doubling up because um, Marcy and Miss Frost are the same person. Debbie and Mrs. Anderson are the same person. So um, there was a you know, thankfully our actors were flexible enough to be able to do different readings and different in, in distinctly different voices mm-hmm. that allowed us to get a little more range out of them. People did find it confusing because early on when we still hadn't cast everyone, we asked we asked people that we knew. We put things up on Facebook, we put things on our website, on our website and eventually we were able to find Miss Frost was the last uh, you know, somebody who I'd who I'd gone to college with, and who said, "Oh, sure, you know, I'll do this." Kind of, kind of, almost as a lark, because I think it was confusing for people because they they would look at the script and they'd say, "What is this? You know, this is this is nonsense." A lot of people we dealt with never actually read the track, so you have to go into the whole. This is who Jack Chick is, and this is what he believes, and he wrote this, and, and we don't believe it, but we expect you to read these lines as if you did, and you know, so that that took a little bit of doing. And, uh, and it, it is an issue because, of course, we all the people who provided the voices for us, they were volunteers. You know, they, they were all people that we had some kind of personal connection with. Mm-hmm. That brings up something like in your production, the voice actor playing the head of the satanic cult also voices the book burning evangelist at the end. Yeah, that was me. OK. <laughs> was this an intentional act of symbolism? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually kind of humorous now that you think about it. 
other people have pointed that out to us. I don't know that it was necessarily an intentional thing, but um, the main thing was that the um, when we were sharing actors or when actors were sharing parts, rather, we wanted to separate them in the movie so that you didn't have like one person reading a line in one voice and then directly followed by the person reading a different line in a different voice because we thought they would clash too much. So we, um, you know, we had a male part for the satanic preacher, which is kind of a throwaway role. And then we had the Afro preacher, which is kind of the crux of the whole thing. And mm-hmm. I had, I had wanted to do that from the very mm-hmm. beginning because I had this sort of condescending Southern draw already bumping around in my head that I definitely wanted to get down on film for that. Yeah. So we, we talked about which one of us was going to do it, whether it was going to be me or whether it was going to be JD. And ultimately we went with JD's performance of it because I thought it was much better than what I had in mind. So, yeah. And of course, Andrew did a really great reading of Mike, <laughs> you know, this sort of like, you know, in, in retrospect, Hi, like, Debbie, you know. he's clearly hitting on Marcy. I mean, Debbie. on Debbie. Yeah. And, and it's never really pointed out in the, but as, as far as the, the cult priest and the Afro preacher, it, once, we, once we kind of hit upon that, we said, you know, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? You know, that, that's, <laughs> I, I think that's a nice touch to it. You know, it's, it's a little bit like in Peter Pan where Mr. Darling and, and Captain Hook are played by the same actor or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I know that's been done in other films before, and I, I guess you can make a sort of a statement with those things. Did you uh, storyboard this first, or did you use the Dark Dungeons tract as your storyboard? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because what I did was I took all of the dialogue out of the tract and basically created a bare bones script. And then I passed it off to Andrew, who is a better writer than I am. And he's the one who wrote the original, like the scene one, which doesn't appear in the tract. He fleshed out some other scenes so that they flowed better into one another. And then what we did was we made a conscious decision that we wanted to make sure that each scene was we wanted to be able to pull a frame out of the movie that would mimic each and every panel in the actual comic. So for each, you know, you have you have two characters and they're talking about something. We wanted to ensure that at certain points during the the filming of it that we emulated as closely as possible, given the limitations of characters and stuff, we, that we would emulate as closely as possible the actual corresponding panel so that if somebody wanted to go through, they could say, ah, oh, that comes from that, that comes from that, that comes from that. There were a few places where we weren't able to get it quite as exact as maybe we would have liked, but overall, we think we were fairly successful in that. What was your budget in doing this? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> um, we d- we didn't have a budget, as Andrew had said. We we had been messing with this for some time, so we had a lot of the models and stuff already collected. So we were able to assemble things out of sort of disparate parts. There there were certain sets and whatnot that we decided that we really wanted to use, like the library where Mike invites Debbie to the book burning. You mean the Bible uh, reading course, and then followed by a book burning? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah the the we purchased the the library set specifically for that yeah and we had to retexture the whole thing but you know those those, the individual parts of it are not expensive i mean over time i'm sure the 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 total outlay has been pretty substantial but for for this specific you know i don't think we had a particular you know and and it's been not having a budget has been interesting as a as a way of trying to trying to see if you can film something like this without Without spending any money, but it's it's also been you know sometimes we ask ourselves you know well, what could we have done if we'd had more, uh, whatever. But since it is just the two of us, the the main thing that would that would improve our filmmaking would be simply to have more people at our disposal. Yeah, it would have been helpful if we had a larger pool to draw from for when it came to voices 
or if we had people with specialized skills, you know, modeling or texturing or things of that sort. And that's a case where having money or especially being able to advertise because we really haven't been able to advertise. Yeah, but I mean, because we're, we're kind of cautious about that because, you know, we, we don't really want to make money off of this because the fair use policy and whatnot we think is, is a lot more tenable if, if we don't try to market this as our own work. Well, I mean, it is our own work, but I mean, if we don't, if we don't try to take credit for the initial creative force mm, yeah, behind it. Yeah, this, is, this isn't meant to be a commercial thing. Our, our hope is that people will see it. And thankfully, the Internet has allowed us to distribute it rather widely without having to incur a lot of expense, you know, other than our, than our website domain mm-hmm. and whatnot. We've had almost 1,000 views mm-hmm. yeah. in the last two months. Is that mm-hmm. it? Yeah, we, 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 uh, got some, we got picked up by some places, and they were very generous enough to, to give us mentions on their blogs or whatever and uh, gave us, sent us a fair amount of traffic and a fair amount of plays, and that's really what we want from it. You know, not, not you know, it's not a money-making venture. So yeah, it's it's more like a labor of love, basically. Yes, that is exactly. It. It's a labor of love. <laughs> I think that's one of the things. I think that it's kind of like uh, special about the Jack T. Trick comic strip itself was mm-hmm. so virulent against gaming and D and D in particular, and then yet it was picked up by the culture as an icon. There's something to be proud of, something to make fun of, but also something to be actually be proud of in a sort of like a weird, you know, twisted, self-deprecating way. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of people have been making parodies of it and then referencing to it because, in a way, it's part of the culture. And I think uh, there's even rumors that, you know, Jack T. Trick himself discontinued because it was actually so popular that it was actually strengthening the hobby rather than convincing people. Do you feel that this, this is what this thing, this is that the strength behind it? Is that what pushed you to actually making this new version of this movie? Yeah, to a, to a large extent. I mean, it's uh, we've always liked the chick tracks just in general because they they are. I mean, even the ones that aren't related to role playing or whatever. There, I don't know if he ever actually went back to role playing. That might be the only one that's actually yeah. on that topic. But of course, he's that he's is the others. only one. Yeah, but yeah, but but it is it is a part of the culture. It's well known. Uh, people who have never heard of uh, of Jack Chick know about it. People who don't know very much about Dungeons and Dragons have heard about it, and we knew. That if we did this, that it would be something that people would say, oh, I know what that is. It's Dark Dungeons, and it's animated. Yeah, we were hoping to draw in both the crowds of people who are fans of Chick Tracks and also people who are role players like yourselves, because I think we were playing to multiple audiences here. Because mm-hmm. I, I think what, what initially got us a lot, of, uh, a lot of buzz, or more buzz than we expected anyway, we were still dealing with very, very small numbers in the scheme of things, but is um, when JD put together the poster because, it, you know, it's, it's the movie poster and it's very much like, you know, I, I'm sure that people saw that and they said, oh, wow, you know, it's like somebody's making a movie out of Dark Dungeons. You know, we just happened to actually be making a movie out of Dark Dungeons. But that was the thing. It's like we, we knew that if we made this movie, that people would want to see it, that they would know what it was. They'd recognize it and they'd say, yeah, yeah, I want to see that. I'd like to see what that looks like animated. And I think there's a certain curiosity. It's like, well, how do you take these two-dimensional panels and how do you actually string them together into a into an actual, you know, 3D moving film? I think as a, as a culture, we tend to enjoy, you know, you don't read the book, you watch the movie. Mm-hmm. 
and people like to see how things are going to be adapted, you know, how, how something worked in a, in one setting, you know, and, and how it's going to look when, when something else is done to it. Will they do a good job? Will they do a bad job? And I know originally looking at the tract, if, if, uh, if I wasn't involved in the project, I would said, well, how would you do this? Because this makes absolutely no sense in context, you know. And, um, you know, some people have called us on smoothing certain things out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know someone made a comment about how we don't have the demons fly out of her back uh, when the Afro preacher basically exercises her. But it, it's kind of questionable as to whether or not those were, you know, people ask us whether those were in, in, intentional. Yeah, intentional decisions. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, the, the, we, we knew that we were going to be drawing primarily from the, the reputation and the cultural, I don't know, the cachet of the strip itself. Because Bullion Union, we're unknowns. We know that. We're not Pixar. Yeah, we, we, knew, that, we knew that this was, going to, was probably going to draw people to, to want to see it. And so that that was a large part of it because we, we knew that you know it wasn't going to be bullying unions, dark dungeons. It was going to be dark dungeons that people wanted to see. All right, uh, are you doing anything else to distribute it? Are you taking it to film festivals or to game conventions or anything like that? Well, to a certain extent, we haven't really been sure exactly what to do with it. You know, it's peppered the internet, and so we've been getting hits from that. But beyond that, we're yeah, we, we've been kind of unsure um, about, I, I guess when we when we were putting the movie together, we talked about, you know, what would, how do we release this? How would we, whatever, but... Um, we're assembling a DVD. Yeah, and, and we're hoping to be able to do some stuff with that because uh, if for nothing else and to be able to use it as a, as a portfolio piece for both of us, we, we haven't really had any firm ideas about how or what to, to do with the movie in terms of... Uh, getting it to a, a broader audience than what we've gotten on the internet. I mean, like I said, we've we've gotten surprisingly far on mostly what amounts to word of mouth, blog repostings, people people mentioning us on Twitter. It's been a godsend. Mm-hmm. I mean, are, are you planning maybe of going to like places like Gen Con, Origins, and then showing this movie, or you know, major conventions like these? That's an idea. Um, we haven't really thought about it too much or put any, you know, scheduling-wise on our own. Yeah, I mean, we haven't solicited it, but if the offer was made, we certainly would. We're not opposed to, to showing it in public. And I know that it, that it does hit a wide audience and would appeal to people like that. Obviously, I mean, it appeals to a lot of people. A lot of people get it. They realize that you're basically making a parody of what was itself, you know, almost a parody, although it was... In, unintentional, but unintentional. Yes. Parody, yes. <laughs> I mean, but uh, uh, are there people out there who think that you guys are anti, you know, gaming and you hate D and D, and then they think that you made this movie because you know you believe the. the do people- I sincerely hope not. Yeah, <laughs> we haven't. We haven't gotten very much feedback to a certain extent on the from the website or, or whatever, which is a little frustrating for us. Uh, I know that when I've showed the video or we've showed the video to like. Friends, small groups of friends and stuff. They were often kind of perplexed by why why we'd made it, why we'd chosen it, and what all this had to do with anything. It's like, so what? Do you really think that, you know, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that most people will, will figure it out. I mean, I, I think we've made it clear on our website, but we know that not everyone reads our website. I knew someone had asked whether or not we were going to make a sequel. Yeah, <laughs> which, which I thought was interesting. It's like, Dark well, we Dungeons too. <laughs> Wrath of the Demon God. Yeah, oh, no, exactly. sorry, that's that's D and D too. Sorry, it's like uh, it's uh, sorry. Yeah. I mean, uh, um, obviously, you guys are gamers, right? Probably not as much as as uh, we used to be. Yeah, I was I was kind of into the White Wolf gaming um, right out of college, and I know you had played some. Yeah, well, I um, 
I never really, I didn't play that much D and D. I had some friends who played it, but the problem was for me is, uh, at least, is that D and D is is most fun when you can get together with a small group of friends and kind of have it out. But um, if it's just you and, and another person who's playing the DM, it can get a little slow. I was a lot heavier into Magic: The Gathering. You know, I, I played that all through high school and 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 through college until I reached a certain point where, you know. <laughs> I had to spend money on other things other than cards. Don't you find it a little bit funny though that the way that sort of a lot of people like Jack Che sort of focus on D and D as being this you know this promotional tool for you know evil groups and so on, and yet Magic Dragon Ring, White Wolves, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, and so on, that sort of like was on the radar for a lot of these you know these sort of like special interest group that were opposed to gaming. Yeah, well, I think that Dark Dungeons is sort of the, as far as the culture is concerned, like this is the poster child for role-playing games. Um, more people know about that than they do about uh, about the, I guess, the ones that are that are less popular in, in, in popular culture, like, you know, like, say, Warhammer or, uh, you know, the White Wolf games. I know some people who have, who have made commentary on Dark Dungeons and says, like, you know, at least they're playing, you know, Dark, you know, Dungeons and Dragons instead of something like, say, you know, Call of Cthulhu. Because then they'd really be asking for trouble. There was a lot of like uh, portrayal of D and D on the screen, and not just like you know the TV screen with the uh, Rana Jaffe, uh, or I don't know how you pronounce her name, Rana Jaffe, or the adaptation of uh, Mazes and Monsters, and so on. I mean, the, those kinds of movies. Were you influenced by that as well? I mean, I'm thinking of like a, the greatest. Uh, what was it called? The greatest American hero, or greatest. Uh, uh, superhero. It was like TV. Yeah, the greatest American hero. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, they had like a thing about. They had a little stab about D and D. D and D, of course, got mentioned on on TV shows now, like you know, The Simpsons and The X Files. Obviously, I mean, it, so there's there's kind of like a little bit of popular culture over there. I mean, uh, in your sense, what is the way that you know the TV producers and and TV shows are actually looking at D and D and has you know Dark Dungeons, you know, for lack of better words, actually has influenced the way that we look at gaming. Unfortunately, I think the attitude, the general cultural attitude towards gaming and towards gamers is, I won't say it's exactly negative, but it's not quite positive either. And because it's always frustrating to be portrayed as as a member of some kind of underclass. Yeah, in the early 80s, you know, people had this sort of opinion that's exposed in, in a track like this. It's like, you know, role players are Satanists, you know, they're they're mentally unbalanced. <laughs> Uh, and I think as time has moved forward, I think now that the common perception is that people who play role game games are kind of nerds. And of course, some people have embraced that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't know if people still consider role playing, mm-hmm. you know, role players to be dangerous. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that the culture has kind of moved past that point of role playing, role playing games being dangerous, or because uh, the old fear was seems to have been that people would lose track of reality or that they didn't realize that they were playing a game. And so just like in Dark Dungeons, that their characters would die and they would they would take it too hard. You know, or... A bunch of teenagers getting together in some dark basement and they're going to smoke pot and, mm-hmm. and, and play whatever and, you yeah. know, they're going to lose. Yeah. yeah. I'm hoping, uh, my, my feeling about it is that by this point is that the games have been around long enough and the world hasn't come to an end. And I think that as a whole generation has grown up, knowing that Dark Dungeons and games like that exist, that they're harmless, that they can be fun, I think has reduced the overall antagonism uh, in the popular culture. I won't say that necessarily um, mainstream shows 
understand the impulse to game, but I think they have a better grasp of what these games are and what they entail than they did back in the 80s because it was still a, a bit of a mystery, and that's what allowed people like Chick to to think that, oh, well, you know, when people mm-hmm. get together and they play these games, they're actually practicing ritual magic, you know, with, with dice and pewter figures because that's obviously how Satanists work. I guess back then it was kind of new and people didn't really know. Now it's more mainstream. I mean, it actually gets on the screen. But it actually brings us to one of our last questions here. Tom Hanks, Jeremy Irons, should they have been in the Dungeons & Dragons movie? <laughs> that would be great. Uh, Sorry, Doug Dungeons. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, yeah, that would, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, Tom Hanks certainly has the experience, and Jeremy Irons is just awesome. <laughs> actually, you know, we'd, we'd love to actually get Will Wheaton to, uh, to do a voice in one of our, one of our videos. Mm-hmm. He's That's a hero true. of ours. totally forgot about Will Wheaton. <laughs> he probably... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I know he's listening to us right now. <laughs> is he? There's a better than fair chance that he is. That's awesome. Well, hello, Will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, well, you it, know... The sequel. Um, yeah, that's a, a sequel. Yes. Dark Dungeons 2, Electric Boogaloo, The Quickening. <laughs> <laughs> whenever, I, whenever I think of movies like this, I try to think of, it's like, you know, what famous actor would I put in a particular role? Meg Ryan as Debbie. Oh, um, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I can't do this off the top of my head. You know, Ben Affleck as Mike. Uh, Hugh, Hugh Laurie as the, as, as the Afro preacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. That kind of thing. Is there anything else that you would like to say to our listeners before we wrap this one up? Watch our movie. Yeah. <laughs> Watch our movie. Check it out. Yeah, you can view it on our websites, uh, www.boolean-union.com. Which we'll have um, in the show notes. Yes, yes, thank you. It's it's on Vimeo. You know, we're, view we're, it, share it with your friends. Talk you know, about it on your blog. Talk about it. Review it. You know, e- either either cruel or kind. We welcome any kind of any kind of commentary. Yeah, creative criticism. Please talk back to us because we love to get user feedback. Mm-hmm. That's about it. Uh, and uh, and remember that we don't actually believe this. We don't actually. Believe this. <laughs> we'll definitely make sure to mention that in the show notes too. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Yeah, well, this has been great. Thank you very, very much for taking the time to do this with us. Thank you for thank you for having yeah, us. Yeah, our pleasure, absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dicecast. We hope you enjoyed it. Polymancer Studios would like to announce that we are presently seeking writers of game fiction. So if you're a writer out there, or a would-be writer, or someone who has an idea for writing something, contact us at writers at polymancer.com. Thank you. That's all the time we have for this episode. You can find out more about who we are and what we do at our website, www.polymancer.com, or our main corporate website, www.polymancerstudios.com. You can email us at dicecast at polymancer.com, Follow us on Twitter at Polymancer or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Polymancer or MySpace.com slash Polymancer. The music for this segment, Fort Minor, Remember the Name, BYFH Remix by Chojin, Violated Instrumental by Technetium, Industrial March Beat and Triple Layer Guitar in E by Neurowax are all released under a Creative Commons license. This episode is copyright 2011 Polymancer Studios Incorporated, released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivative works license. This episode may be freely redistributed as long as it is done for no charge and as long as due credit is given to the copyright owners. Full text of the Creative Commons license is available at creativecommons.org. 
Dicecast is a trademark of Polymancer Studios Incorporated. Polymancer is a registered trademark of Polymancer Studios Incorporated. Thank you for listening to the Dicecast.